On the last episode of The Heretic, an interview on Sky News triggers a new wave of allegations against Peter. Well, I was duly summoned to the uh, the dean's office and given a, a brown paper envelope with the allegations that I'd said the things that I'd said and that it was serious misconduct. And James Cook University's disciplinary processes reached terrifying new lows. Uh, it was just crazy. I, I think they just lost all sense of reasonableness in the end in there, just chasing and hunting. It felt like I, I was just being hunted like mm. an animal. Culminating in Peter's sacking from JCU. Coming up on this episode, Peter decides to fight back. And I realised that there is no way I can live under that. I've either got to be completely silent, go back into my hole and never say anything ever again, or I've got to fight it and a legal team was assembled. We laid out his options, he you know, cows over and takes it, or if he wanted to fight, these are the angles that he could be fighting on. While JCU go to new lengths to silence Peter. And so I tried to point that out to them, that they were destroying James Cook University in the process of something that they couldn't win effectively. As both parties head to a showdown in court. I'm Gideon Rosner, and this is The Heretic, inside Peter Ridd's fight for freedom of speech on climate change, presented by the Institute of Public Affairs and produced by Saul Muscatel and Mitchell Schomburg. Peter was sacked from JCU in May 2018, but by then he'd already been lawyering up for months. Peter knew that he would need legal advice, as James Cook University continued to shower him with trumped-up allegations of misconduct. At his house in Townsville, Peter shows me the extraordinary volume of correspondence he received from the university. So these were these are the kind of letters you were receiving from JCU for what was it over a year, just under a year, uh, almost a year, yeah. And how many of these sort of letters? Oh, I don't know, twenty or thirty, in something the like in the that. space of a year. Yeah, something like that. That's right. Some of them were a lot thicker. <laughs> and can you explain what? These ones are? Uh, this one was just one of the bunch of serious misconduct allegations. Right. Um, this was my final uh, being fired. Um, right. So my termination letter from the Vice-Chancellor. Right, okay. And this was this was after a year of clinches? Yeah, close to a year of battling backwards and forward and 40 misconduct, 40 serious misconduct allegations. 40 serious allegations. 40, 40 serious misconduct allegations. And yeah. that culminated on the 2nd yeah, of May right. with your yeah, that's right. final termination. Yeah. So these letters would come how frequently? About oh, well, at some stage there, they were coming in every couple of weeks. Um, but what, what was annoying was that nobody ever spoke to me. Mm. Right? None of the, my bosses would come and talk to me to see if we could res resolve it. It was just letters, brown papers, being given a document, having to respond to it. Uh, and then, of course, with the legal people responding to mm. it. Did it get exhausting? Uh, yes, and it got very, very frightening. At this stage, only a handful of people were aware of what Peter was going through. One of them was IPA senior fellow, Dr. Jennifer Marahassi. An accomplished scientist and climate skeptic herself, Jennifer was only too aware of the hostility faced by those who spoke out against popular theories of global warming. She knew that the university wouldn't stop and that Peter would be beaten into submission if he didn't get help and fast. Peter and I have been friends for probably, I've known Peter for about 20 years. I was talking to him when he 
received his first censure, mm -hmm. which was about the time I was asking him to write the chapter for Climate Change, The Facts, mm -hmm. chapter one that we published in our book. Um, he then rang me up when he received the second censure and he was really quite upset. It was actually a Saturday morning mm. and I just said to him, don't worry, Peter, um, we've got you back. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ring John Roscombe straight away, which I did. Mm. And I rang John and John said, don't worry, Jen, we'll find him the best QC. And that's what John Roscombe's done. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what's happened. John Roscombe is Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. It was a Saturday, August 2017, uh, and I was in Perth. I was at uh, a legal conference, the conference of the Samuel Griffiths um, Society, and I was a, we'd just come out to a morning tea break. Uh, we just all heard a lecture on subsidiarity and federation. As and you I, do. As you do. And I got a phone call from uh, Jennifer Morahassi, and Jennifer said that Peter was having issues or continued issues with uh, the administration at uh, James Cook University. They had issued him various legal letters and threats and warnings and that it may be the time for Peter to get some professional legal advice. And Jennifer asked me how the IPA could help because we were united in doing what the IPA could do for Peter and getting him some professional advice. And I remember it pretty clearly, actually, I said to Jennifer, dead set, I'm in Perth at this legal conference surrounded by a few hundred lawyers. And I actually was. So on this Saturday morning with a cup of tea and a scot in my hand, I walked around the uh, the conference theatre and uh, theatre hall where we were and I looked for lawyers that I thought could be from Queensland who might uh, know something about industrial relations law. And I asked a few people and I basically went around saying, "Do you?" because I thought we needed someone from Queensland who knew the, um, who knew the areas uh, involved. And um, uh, someone pointed out to me, Ben Kidson. I didn't know Ben at all. Uh, and they said, uh, he's a leading barrister in Queensland. Uh, and I introduced myself to Ben and I said, hello, I'm John Roscombe from the Institute of Public Affairs and he knew about me uh, and I think he, he might have heard of Peter Ridd and I said, have you ever done any industrial relations uh, work before? And he said, yes, I, I'm certainly familiar with that area of practice. And I said, oh, we have this issue. Yes, he was lawyering up before he was sacked, but the writing was well and truly on the wall. Mitchell Downs of Marnie's Lawyers in Brisbane would go on to be Peter's instructing solicitor throughout his trial. After I spoke to John, I um, then was given, well, Peter called me, whichever way it went. Um, we had a lengthy conversation. He'd received a letter. He emailed through the letter that he'd received from the university. Um, and we laid out his options. He, you know, cows over and takes it. Or if he wanted to fight, these are the angles that he could be fighting on. From there, um, after that initial conversation or conversations, I think over a couple of days, as I, as I recall, um, Peter wasn't willing. He was um, hesitant, um, knowing that if he fought it, what he was buying was essentially termination right. at some point. Um, he had had a 30-year relationship with the university. His entire life was in Townsville. It's no other universities in Townsville. So he really, um, it was a really big decision. I know he spoke to his wife at length about it. And he decided to come back and said, okay, no, I'm going to fight them on this. Peter recalls the incident that clinched his decision to fight, a presentation he made to the Sydney Institute made almost impossible by the string of gag orders coming from the university. They were, at that stage, telling me they wanted to see the 
presentations, all the PowerPoint slides that I was going to give. And I had to hand those over and they told me that I had to remove some of these slides and they told me what I could and couldn't say. So this was, I was kept, being kept on an awfully short string, even though I was, you know, supposedly free. And I found myself in a very difficult position being asked a question at the Sydney Institute. And I got halfway through uh, a sentence and I realized I can't say this. and I had to stop and explain, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't answer this question. And it was a terrible situation, very, very embarrassing. When I got back from that, I realized that there is no way I can live under that. I've either got to be completely silent go back into my hole and never say anything ever again, or I've got to fight it. By the time he was sacked, Peter knew that his decision to fight would cost him a lot more than just his job. If Peter was going to achieve any kind of justice, he would have to take James Cook University to court. Peter knew that taking on the university would not be easy, and more importantly, that it would not be cheap. But with help from the IPA, Peter set up a GoFundMe page, asking fellow travellers to chip in and help with his legal fees. Well, the IPA kicked it all off with a little bit, very important seed funding, I think you'd call it, to get the initial lawyers up and running and um, and then helping with the GoFundMe and the general publicity to really get the word out there. That was very, very good. But actually, you know, the, the fact that, that you knew you had friends uh, made a huge difference. That moral support that there's somebody out there who's on your side, you're not alone, with all these horrible confidentiality directions um, in terms of your morale was probably as important as the money. But there was a problem. Peter was, at that stage, still employed by the university and had been directed to keep details of the allegations against him confidential. In fact, at one stage, Peter had been told that he couldn't discuss his disciplinary proceedings with anyone, not even his own wife. But to make a public fundraising appeal, Peter would have to go public it meant that his sacking would be guaranteed. In other words, once Peter started raising money for legal fees, there would be no turning back. Well, there was a lot of to and fro um, between the, the, the university and, and us, and we decided we were going to go to court. I think the university was hoping we wouldn't go to court. Our problem was that we needed money, and a lot of it. Um, so we went for a GoFundMe campaign. We needed 90000 bucks. We raised it in two days. The thing was, though, that for a GoFundMe campaign, if you're going to ask for $90,000 worth of uh, other people's money, you've got to tell them what it's about. They need to know that this is not a, I'm not up for sexual misconduct with my you know, students or something terrible like that. So I had to put everything, all the allegations, all the 20-odd the at that stage allegations against me, I had to put on a website so people could read it, all the gory detail, which I wasn't embarrassed about at all. But that meant that I deliberately disobeyed JCU's illegal instruction to keep it all silent. Because you were still employed by them at the time. I was employed by them. And even though all of that, I had a right to tell anybody I liked, JCU was saying, well, actually, I didn't have a right. This was the, this business about trying to keep it secret. Mm. And we knew that this was going to be a problem because I was um, going to break their illegal directive. And of course, they were very, very unhappy with that. Um, so then we get yet another set of charges about the, the release of this material and, all, and various other things that I'd said in the course of those few months. Eventually, JCU called Peter's bluff and sacked him for good. It upped the ante on the dispute and meant that Peter would need to raise even more money. Now, he was fighting a case of unlawful dismissal. 
Well, again, it was the the GoFundMe campaign. Um, there was two. The second one was for about one hundred and sixty thousand. It took three days to get that that amount of money. Again, we had to put all the information up. Again, James Cook <laughs> didn't like that. But they couldn't do anything because by that stage I'd been fired. Um, so yes, we were we were out. Peter's fight back was taking shape. Not only did he have an instructing solicitor in Mitchell Downs, he also had a barrister with Ben Kidston brought onto the team. Peter had financial resources as well, having raised a combined $260,000 in just five days from his GoFundMe page. But if Peter was going to rival the firepower of JCU, he needed more than just that. JCU was in a position to brief the very best and would eventually bring top QCs onto its team. Peter needed a legal heavyweight of his own. Enter Stuart Wood. Stuart Wood is a Melbourne institution, one of Australia's most experienced hands when it comes to workplace relations law. In fact, speaking to the Coalition Party Room at the height of the Ridd case, Attorney General Christian Porter would describe Wood as one of the best IR lawyers in the country. I sit down with Stuart Wood in his Queen Street chambers. John Roscombe rang me and asked me to help. I'd known John for many years, maybe three decades, and I'd read about it in the press, but I hadn't had much understanding of what was going on and John rang me and asked me to help, so I did. According to Mitchell Downs, Stuart Wood was a game changer. The university um, had a Queen's Council of their own um, and um, in a bit of a litigation arms race, we felt we had to get one. Um, and who better than um, Stuart Wood, uh, uh, you know, one of Australia's leading workplace and industrial silks um, to come in and really um, focus. And what he did more than anything was there might have been half a dozen arguments that we had run or you know different case theories we had run and he focused it down to just the two on the supremacy of the academic freedom under the EA and the anti-confidentiality direction which is also just a matter of an interpretation of the EA um, and really said look this is, these are our points this is how, how we're going to run it it was we had weekly teleconferences we had action items we had agendas it was minutes it was just um, it was actually a pleasure to be involved with and Stuart's organisation is what he really brought to that team. Peter's sacking was obviously wrong, but Peter's legal team had to prove that it was unlawful. To do this, they relied on the Enterprise Bargaining Agreement covering staff at James Cook University. In effect, the EBA formed Peter's employment contract and importantly, Clause 14 of the EBA gave university staff the express right to intellectual freedom. Clause 14 was broad allowing JCU staff to not only pursue critical and open inquiry at the university, but also to participate in public debate and express opinions about their fields of expertise. It even gave staff the right to express opinions about the operations of James Cook University. The Enterprise Agreement effectively said that an academic could engage in public debate and could disagree with the university within their field of academic competence, so long as that the, and the only fetters on that were the vilification, harassment, threatening, and um, whatever the other, intimidation, I think was, was the fourth one. And there was never any suggestion that Peter had been any of those things. Um, so it came down to, was Peter exercising his, his right to engage in debate? Hmm. and to um, disagree with the university and to um, call out what, or to discuss what he saw was um, scientific failings. The complication was that JCU had a code of conduct governing the behaviour of all staff. If he wasn't in breach of his enterprise agreement, what, what was he alleged to have breached? 
um, the code of conduct, which um, and this is this was the, the the key issue at trial was where the code of conduct says you have to uphold the university's reputation and where you have to be collegiate and be respectful for your colleagues' needs. JCU's argument was that while Peter did have a right to academic freedom under his enterprise agreement, he had still breached the code of conduct by saying things like the science coming out of JCU on the Great Barrier Reef, quote, couldn't be trusted. Peter had broken various requirements like upholding the reputation of the university. The question was, which agreement prevailed? Well, that was the crucial issue in the case, the key issue. And the reason for that is that we've simply got a hierarchy of laws in this country and it's base or its highest, whichever way you want to look at it, are the statutes that the various parliaments pass. Above that are the awards and the industrial or enterprise agreements that are entered into. And above that are the contracts and policies and directions employers give. Well, that, that principle is very long-standing in our system that you can't, in effect, contract out of your award or enterprise agreement rights. And that was the issue in this case. Admittedly, the, the award or enterprise agreement right wasn't about money. No. It was about academic freedom. But the question was, could you contract out of that right? Could a policy, a code of conduct that the employer promulgated defeat the rights that were contained in an industrial instrument, in this case, an enterprise agreement that had been entered into between the relevant academic union and the university. Peter's day in court came on the 26th of March 2019 when he arrived at the Federal Circuit Court in Brisbane for the start of his three-day hearing. He walked into court with an impressive entourage. His wife Cheryl, Barrister Stuart Wood QC and Ben Kidston and instructing solicitor Mitchell Downs. The legal team was also augmented by Ben Gillis, an up-and-coming barrister from Melbourne and Amelia Hassan, a young gun lawyer from Marnie's. But Peter had many other supporters. By the time the trial began, Peter's battle with JCU had been widely reported and there was a hefty crowd in court to show their support. In fact, the courtroom was so full that at one stage there weren't enough seats for everybody. It was literally standing room only. Journalist Charlie Peel was also in court, covering the hearing for the Australian newspaper. There's definitely a very strong turnout there, particularly um, for a federal circuit court hearing. Oftentimes there's only maybe one or two public gallery seats taken in that but for a lot of the time extra seats were having to be brought in to um, accommodate those who wanted to see it and chatting to some of the people in the gallery from very diverse um, backgrounds who you know were keen to see um, what well to see him get his opportunity to uh, air his grievances and and I suppose they hope to see a bit of uh, justice. So when you when you say diverse backgrounds, what sort of people were, were there? So there were other academics there actually who um, felt similar issues uh, with with universities, um, uh, and and some of them approached me to to tell me about their stories as well. Um, but there uh, there was a uh, university an, an academic from QUT, an academic from UQ were just two of those who I know were there. And there were also former students there as well uh, as the academics, um, you know, keen to support um, Professor Ridd and, and also to um, see him have a chance to explain his actions. Peter recalls walking into court. 
Well, the best thing about it was that there were all my friends there. <laughs> I'd got old students, some old teachers, um, people, the mother of an old school friend, an old school friend. Um, they came in, they'd leave. They could often only stay for a few hours and then they'd leave. It was fantastic to see that. Um, so it was. It really bored my spirit, so there's no doubt about that. Yeah, so it was, it was packed, the court. It was, yeah, that's right. Yes, and it was... Yeah, you could tell that there was a lot of interest and that a lot of people could just see that irrespective of the legality or not, what had happened was just not the right thing to happen. One other person in court was Callum Thwaites. He had come to national attention fighting a free speech battle of his own when the Australian Human Rights Commission had targeted him and his friends for objecting to the existence of a segregated Indigenous-only computer lab at the Queensland University of Technology. I felt surprisingly good sitting there because... The courtroom was packed. Peter had all sorts of support. He had an amazing legal team. And from, from the start, he refused to, to sit down on this, which means that people are fighting back, not letting these institutions, these bureaucrats dictate what you can or can't do and saying, no, enough's enough. This isn't right. Do your job and do it appropriately. So I felt, I felt very happy seeing that kind of stuff. This podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. For over 75 years, the IPA has been fighting to secure freedom for the next generation with thousands of members across Australia. And now we have a special offer for fans of The Heretic. Join the IPA today and receive exclusive subscriber-only content, such as extended interviews with Peter Ridd and many of the other people interviewed for this podcast. All that plus the other benefits of IPA membership including our quarterly magazine, the IPA Review, priority access and discounted ticket prices to IPA events, regular email updates from the IPA team, and more. Just head to ipa.org.au forward slash join. And now, back to The Heretic. Gideon Rosner, Director of Policy at the Institute of Public Affairs here, reporting from the Peter Ridd uh, legal proceedings at the Federal Circuit Court in Brisbane, Queensland. Now, so far... The hearing got underway. I was in Brisbane myself, reporting on proceedings for the IPA. First up was Stuart Wood for Peter, making the case that Peter's right to academic freedom had been violated. Stuart Wood has made an ex extensive point that all of what Peter Ridd has said was extensively protected by his right to academic freedom contained in Peter Ridd's uh, enterprise bargaining agreement. Wood also took aim at the unfairness of the disciplinary process. Stuart Wood QC moved on to the disciplinary process undertaken by James Cook University and the serious procedural deficiencies that involved, including hitting him with absurd gag orders that effectively meant that he was locked in a star chamber under which he wasn't able to seek help from anybody or even tell anybody about the facts of his case, uh, including his own wife. But JCU wasn't giving up without a fight. They wheeled out every argument they could think of including some that bordered on ridiculous. But the biggest absurdity that we heard today uh, from this case was the argument by James Cook University that Peter Reid was not covered, in fact, by his academic freedom protections in his EBA because his commentary around the Great Barrier Reef and climate change wasn't within his field of expertise. Now, that is completely unbelievable. It is entirely within, within his area of expertise. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what the judge makes of that when the opening arguments from the defence begin tomorrow. But on day two of the hearing, JCU's case started to collapse. With the sources of a taxpayer-funded university, JCU had arrived in court with a Rolls-Royce legal team led by Chris Murdoch QC, a highly experienced barrister. But even Murdoch found it difficult to justify what the university had done to Peter. Even with a top silk, JCU could not defend 
the indefensible. Peter recalls watching Murdoch make his opening argument. No, the judge, the judge could see that some of this stuff was absolutely disgraceful. I, mean, I, I forget the exact words, but you know, when when they were trying to make this case that I'd lied about, you know, not being able to speak to my wife and all this type of stuff, the judges said, you know, what you said did was, I think he said, reprehensible. You know, you should have apologised to him rather than hit him with yet another charge. And there were many, many other occasions where the judge clearly just. He used to sigh and carry on and say, there's so many things about this case, Mr. Murdoch. Um, he obviously wasn't terribly impressed by the university case. Of course, it's not unusual for judges to play devil's advocate. It's their job to ask questions, test evidence, and give parties a chance to respond to any doubts the judge has about their case. But clearly, JCU's case didn't stand up to scrutiny. Judge Vasta was very critical throughout the proceeding, was almost bewildered uh, at times when he heard of the JCU's treatment of Professor Ridd. Um, there were times where he was clearly shaking his head and, and essentially passing judgment uh, there and then where, uh, you know, where he highlighted certain instances of behaviour, particularly around uh, the discrepancy between JCU's uh, messaging the mixed messaging on whether Professor Ridd could even discuss the matter with his wife and who he could discuss the matter with, um, and and Judge Vasta was very critical of that and and really in in the um, proceedings tore strips off the university and um, and in effect its legal representation. In particular, the judge made the observation that the university apparently took no notice of Peter's complaints about the quality of Great Barrier Reef science, but instead did everything they could to silence him. He was very critical of the fact that when, whether or not Professor Ridd's argument was valid, a university that's supposed to be about free thought and freedom of speech and freedom of ideas would engage these ideas in debate. And if... It, if as they had um, declared that something was so uh, so outrageous, as they described um, Mr. Ridd's accusations as, then they could simply debate it and sort the issue out that way through an academic process, which is what these institutions are supposed to be about. But Judge Vasta rightly pointed out that the university in this case did not want a bar of that, that it wanted solely to prevent this uh, from becoming a public uh, relations issue essentially mm. and they um, did everything they could to to shut Professor Ridd down but his conviction um, saw that he continued to voice his concern with that and and that was something that um, Judge Vasta was very very critical about and um, and quite scathing of the university and that they wouldn't debate him that these top scientists wouldn't debate him on the issue despite Professor Ridd even offering to debate them, from what I understand. And it, um, it ended up in the, the messy legal situation that we have now. But for Peter, there were challenges too. Day two would be the day in which he was going to be called to the witness box, which would include a grilling by Chris Murdoch on behalf of JCU. Murdoch's line of questioning zeroed in on the statement that the university had used as an excuse for blasting Peter out, that scientific organisations were untrustworthy. He was clearly trying to make out that when I said that uh, the institutions were untrustworthy, that I was saying that they were dishonest. And that was not what I was saying. I was saying that they were untrustworthy because they weren't careful enough. 
Um, I wasn't saying that scientists have deliberately fabricated data or any of those things. And he was trying to twist my words to imply that that's what I meant. And it certainly was never what I meant. Um, so that was one of the things. And he was also um, trying to say that, you know, that the allegation was a was a terrible allegation in some way and, and you know, that they're untrustworthy. And, and I, I agree that it was a very serious allegation. And in fact, I said that, um, you know, it was an allegation that was very important because it affected that the bad science was affecting every major industry in North Queensland. So I think I said it was a very serious allegation with a very serious point. In the end, Peter made it through the grilling unscathed. They, I thought as a witness, he was very reliable. And I think this came out in Judge Vasta's judgment. Uh, he was very considered with the answers that he gave and very addressed each part of the questions technically and uh, for the most part, or if not all of it, he seemed to be genuinely uh, attempting to answer the questions to the best of his ability. Now, back live with Andrew Bolt with the Bolt Report. As I told you last week, Professor Peter Ridd is a Great Barrier Reef expert who was sat by James Cook University in Queensland. As day two of the hearing drew to a close, JCU was in far worse shape than Peter. In particular, JCU were wounded by one stunning admission which reverberated around the news cycle. Well, Andrew, look, the most incredible part of today, from my point of view, was when Chris Murdoch said in court, in what I think was maybe a little bit of an unguarded moment, that uh, the academic freedom right uh, that given to the university to its staff is, quote, not as, wide, as widespread as Dr Ridd uh, claims that it is. That's an extraordinary thing for a, university, a barrister acting on behalf of a university to be saying. This is a university. Academic freedom and freedom of speech should be everything. Thing. It should be paramount. Yet here we are, a, a QC hired without tax dollars, I might add, saying that uh, academic freedom given to university professors should be construed narrowly. If there was ever any question about how important the Peter Ridd case was, it was answered in that one moment. Yes, Peter's case was at law a workplace dispute. And yes, it was also about serious questions about the quality of climate science. But above all, Peter's case was about the right to merely question to merely speak out at a public institution at which intellectual freedom and free speech should be paramount. And now, JCU's barrister had given the game away. Free speech only mattered to the extent that university administrators said that it did. Gideon Rosner here from the IPA, reporting on day three of the Peter Ridd case at the Federal Circuit Court in Brisbane, in what has been another explosive day uh, for this important fight for free speech on climate change. Now the day began with a... The final day of the hearing began. JCU had barely landed a blow on Peter the previous day. All that remained was for Stuart Wood to make his closing argument, and he did not miss. Well, I, I've used the, the analogy of uh, uh, loading a 15-inch naval gun. I'm a bit of a sort of a Navy uh, boff, you know. A 15-inch naval gun. The barristers would give him these little um, notebooks because he's a totally paper person. He doesn't seem to use computers a great deal. And they'd load up these papers with little sticky labels on them and hand it to them. And then he'd aim and he'd take five minutes to essentially set the scene for why the university had done something illegal. And then he would just open up on them. <laughs> and it was just a devastating performance. Unfortunately, 
Court rules mean that no recording of Stuart Wood's closing address is available. Instead, we have recreated part of it based on the transcript of the hearing. This excerpt has also been edited for clarity and brevity. There are two things that my learned friend, Mr Murdoch, didn't address you on at all and had been ignored by the university for the last two years. One, this is a university. And two, intellectual freedom is foundational to a university. JCU didn't invent intellectual freedom when it was founded 50 years ago. It wasn't invented by the people who made the enterprise bargaining agreement. It has a long history that goes back 10 centuries. This is a university saying it is an error to describe intellectual freedom as a fundamental right. This is extraordinary. We've listened for a day to the university advocating for a narrow construction of intellectual freedom. It would be like listening to someone from the church come and advocate for a narrow view of religious freedom. It is a university doing this. The idea of intellectual freedom is not about speaking the truth. It is about speaking your opinion. Why? Because the clash of opinions over time, if they're hard enough, if they're tough enough, if they are direct enough, they will reveal the truth. The truth is the product of the exercise of intellectual freedom. It is not a requirement for its existence. This is a university. Intellectual freedom is a doctrine that's well understood and goes back a couple of millennia and it covers what you say and how you say it. Now, my learned friend started by saying you construe the academic freedom right narrowly. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? Firstly, it ignores the context that this is a university and we're talking about a fundamental right of academics in universities. Secondly, it is mission fulfilling to have the broadest possible conception of academic freedom. And thirdly, to do otherwise has a chilling effect on people's ability to speak and reduces the freedom to naught. Three weeks later, I traveled back to Brisbane for a working lunch with Peter, Stuart Wood and John Roscombe. We met at a restaurant at the Eagle Street Pier, overlooking the Brisbane River. What I didn't know as I sat down was that the judge was about to hand down his decision. Peter was running late, having got caught up at another meeting. I was ironically in a meeting with the Cane Groves organisation um, and a text came through and I could see it was from Mitchell Downs. And um, literally uh, f five minutes later before I walked out, um, the people were in this meeting, you know, hoping that I'd won and I'd said I wasn't sure whether I'd won. Um, anyway, I walked out the door and he was the text which I then read and uh, rang Mitchell and uh, yes, we'd won, so I was over the moon, obviously. The win was comprehensive, with the judge ruling that the university had committed a total of 28 breaches of the law, ranging from their bogus findings of misconduct to the rolling gag orders to Peter's eventual sacking. It was a total and complete victory. Above all, the judgment upheld the right to academic freedom in Peter's EBA and rejected the idea that JCU could limit it via their code of conduct. Well... The reasons speak for themselves, obviously, and people are able to read them. The reasons are found on the internet, on the site that the Federal Circuit Court set up or sets up. But in essence, what Judge Vesta found, when you get to the core of it, is that the rights found in the Enterprise Agreement, i.e. the Enterprise Agreement, prevails over the obligations found in the employer's policy, the code of conduct. So in very simple terms, uh, the university wasn't able to contract out of the right to academic freedom 
found in the Enterprise Agreement. The decision was reported widely around Australia, and for that matter, the world. But to this day, many on the left play down the significance of Peter's win for freedom of speech on climate change. Specifically, they point to a line in the introduction to Judge Vasta's judgment, which shares that the case was, quote, purely and simply about the proper construction of a clause in an enterprise agreement. And that's true in a strictly legal sense. But it is at the very least misleading to argue that issues of academic freedom were not considered in the judgment. In fact, they were discussed at length. Here is an excerpt from the judgment. Again, it has been edited for clarity and brevity. To use the vernacular, the university has played the man, not the ball. Incredibly, the university has not understood the whole concept of intellectual freedom. In the search for truth, it is an unfortunate consequence that some people may feel denigrated, offended, hurt or upset. It may not always be possible to act collegiately when diametrically opposed views clash in the search for truth. That is why intellectual freedom is so important. It allows academics to express their opinions without fear of reprisal. It allows a Charles Darwin to break free of the constraints of creationism. It allows an Albert Einstein to break free of the constraints of Newtonian physics. It allows the human race to question conventional wisdom in the never-ending search for knowledge and truth. And that, at its core, is what higher learning is about. To suggest otherwise is to ignore why universities were created and why critically focused academics remain central to all that university teaching claims to offer. Peter was subsequently awarded a total of $1.2 million by way of damages, including $125,000 as a pecuniary penalty on top of the money awarded to Peter in terms of wages lost as a result of his sacking. After such a comprehensive and humiliating loss, you would expect JCU to cut their losses, move on, and most importantly, let Peter move on with his life. But sadly, that is not what happened. In September 2019, JCU, incredibly, lodged an appeal against the Federal Circuit Court's decision in favour of Peter. Having stifled Peter's contractual and moral right to academic freedom, having hit Peter with multiple censures and gag orders, even telling him at one point that he couldn't speak to his own wife, having dragged him from one official star chamber to the other, having sacked Peter after 30 years of loyal service to the university, and then having spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money manning a legal battle against Peter after the fact and losing on every count, JCU decided to prolong the ugly battle, dragging it to a high court. It has become a pattern of behaviour with JCU, escalating their dispute with Peter when any rational organisation would have given up. According to Peter, even his lawyers were surprised by the university's bloody-mindedness. I think they were surprised. I think we've all been surprised how that when it, whenever they've actually had an opportunity to do the right thing and reduce the bad publicity that keeps on coming for them, they've always, you know, rolled the dice and doubled the bet. You know, they've yeah. they've just made it worse every time. And but this has been very, very surprising. I guess they haven't known how to quit when they're behind. No, well, they had the opportunity, um, you know, when we when we first had the legal people tell them these these charges are ridiculous. They had it again. Um, of course, they doubled, they made it worse by then, you know, reading my emails. They got bad publicity when we released a lot of this stuff and they they made that worse. Um, then when we had the GoFundMe, they made things worse again by hitting me with even more allegations and mm -hmm. firing me. So they just don't know how to, to realise that the public thinks that what they're doing is just disgraceful. Peter is right about public opinion. 
as JCU were launching their appeal, no fewer than five federal MPs spoke out in the coalition party room, furious at JCU's handling of the case. Several of them have JCU campuses in their electorates and in speaking out were reflecting the anger in their local communities about what JCU has done. JCU alumni have also spoken out. One of them is John Nicholl, a former senior lecturer of physics at the university. He wrote to JCU's university council, pleading with them not to proceed with the appeal. I'll just start with saying that the uh, response by the university at the judgment that uh, Salvatore Vasta brought out, which uh, anyone sitting through that court case would have agreed totally with as a, as a layman, uh, and the judgment came out very strongly in Peter's favour, the university people, uh, the vice-chancellor in particular and the provost, uh, claimed that they didn't accept the judgment. How they could say that, I, I don't know, but nevertheless they did. And so I wrote to the council, who I thought was the body which would have the, the uh, final say in whether they were going to challenge the, the case. And I uh, set out my reasons for it, which were largely that what the university was doing was destroying its reputation. It was not an Australia-limited argument. It was a worldwide. Mm. You could read arguments about James Cook University's behaviour in in the London Times, in places all over the world, were really were writing this because it was of significant interest to anyone who was pursuing freedom of speech within the university system. And so I tried to point that out to them, that they were destroying James Cook University in the process of something that they couldn't win effectively. And from that, only one of those 30, 18 council members had the courtesy to acknowledge that I had written. Only so one out only of 18. One, only one, a young lady uh, who I exchanged emails a couple of times with uh, and who I gave full marks for having done so. Uh, but there's 17 others who made no attempt to uh, let me know that they'd got the letter, whether they thought of it. I didn't, wouldn't have cared if they'd written back and said, we don't believe you or whatever, but they didn't do anything. They, they didn't just, even they, acknowledge They didn't even acknowledge that they'd got a letter. You might be wondering why JCU are going ahead with the appeal, considering how deeply unpopular this saga has made them. For Callum Thwaites, it's their way of kicking the can down the road so as to avoid owning up to the fact that the university has acted unlawfully. Because... You can never say, oh, we did something wrong. Um, and, and that's the thing about taking things to court with universities and stuff like that or statutory bodies. It's a way for them to say, oh, well, we don't think we did anything wrong, but the court said so, and I guess we have to follow what the court says. They still don't admit that they've done anything that was improper. Another theory is that JCU's motivation is a financial one. Much of JCU's funding is awarded for its reef science, which is itself largely concerned with the effects of climate change on the Great Barrier Reef. But would the funding be there if there was no problem to solve? Would reef science be as relevant if Peter was right and the reef wasn't in imminent danger? Or are JCU simply driven by pride? Could this whole saga have been avoided if the likes of Terry Hughes had debated Peter rather than lodging a complaint? Is this whole saga simply a result of the fact that JCU administrators would rather go to extreme lengths to silence a respected staff member than to admit they are wrong? Whatever the reason behind them, JCU's actions show the extraordinary power of universities to crush dissent, especially around things as politically charged as climate change. 
One recurring theme from the interviews I've conducted for this project has been the slow decline of Australian universities. From public squares of free intellectual inquiry to authoritarian organs of the state in which taxpayer money is used to stifle controversy and reinforce prevailing orthodoxies. Peter's case is important, not just for Peter, but for the many others like him at our universities who have not spoken out. It's important for anyone who's been put through hell for doing nothing more than voicing their opinion. And it is important for the ongoing debate around climate change, an area of public policy on which governments across Australia and the world are spending billions of dollars and jeopardising entire industries, while potentially not knowing the truth. Peter's case will now go to the federal court, with the hearing scheduled for late May 2020. By that time, it will be almost five years since JCU launched its first investigation against Peter, and it may be years yet before this saga is finally over. But as always, Peter refuses to go quietly. Well, we'll definitely uh, continue to fight. We can't, we can't turn back now. I don't think they're going to win uh, this appeal, but it's going to be a long battle and we're going to have to fight it. This episode of The Heretic has been written and presented by me, Gideon Rosner, and produced by Saul Muscatel and Mitchell Schomburg, and brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. To support the work of the RPA or to join as a member, please visit rpa.org.au.